and welcome to the September 2006 podcast of Ordinary Means. You'll find us on the web at ordinarymeans.com. I'm Sean Nolan. I'm your host, pastor of Ucrest Presbyterian Church in 84, Pennsylvania. And with me is the pastor of Laurel Highlands Presbyterian Church in Greensburg, Pennsylvania, Matt Bowling. Hello, Matt. Hey, Sean. How are you? And uh, Peter Jones is not with us today. Uh, just Matt and I sitting here at the table, and we're hoping to uh, spend the next uh, 45 minutes hour talking with you about uh, church planting mm. uh, and how do, does, uh, how do the ordinary means, and when we talk about the ordinary means, of course, we're referring uh, to the, the preaching of the word, the right administration of the sacraments, uh, prayer, uh, the, the normal ways that God works. Uh, in the lives of his people, the ways that God in his word has said, this is, this is how I seek, save, and sanctify the lost. Uh, how do those ordinary means apply to church planting? Now, probably the first question that uh, some of you are listening are asking is, what in the world is church planting? Uh, some of you may have been in the same church all your life. Uh, some of you may have uh, been converted later and come into an existing church. Um, many of you may, uh, even some of the pastors among you, uh, may never have seen uh, or been a part of what, what is called a church plant, and that is a, a church that is, is begun from scratch, essentially. A church that is, uh, was not a church, a place where there was no church. Suddenly a church is, uh, exists. Uh, that happens for a number of reasons. Oftentimes um, Christians will move into an area, and they will seek each other out, and they will say, well, we don't have a church. There's no church in this area. Uh, what do we do to, to find a church? How do we call a pastor to come pastor us? Um, that's often the way it works. Another way it often works is that a church or a denomination will, will target, and I know this is, a, uh, this is weighted language, but will target an area. We'll say, here's an area that God has put on our hearts. Uh, here's an area that we see needs the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, here is an area that uh, that you know is desperately in in need of of God's grace, and so a church will specifically look at an area and seek to find ways that they can perhaps send some of their congregation, uh, maybe even send a pastor into. Uh, into that area. Oftentimes denominations are doing this very regularly. Many denominations have committees that their sole job is to, to continually be looking for areas where we can what we call plant churches. Uh, Matt, do you want to add anything to that? Well, I think that as we think about planting churches, which is just to, to begin a church where there, isn't one, there hasn't been one before, when we think about it, is it, um, is it a work of necessity is it a work of uh, that's strategic? Is it um, do we just do it because people ask? Uh, I think we've got to think about it as well along these lines. Is it something that's nice to do, or is it something that's necessary to do? Hmm. And when we look in the Book of Acts, as we're going to do a little bit uh, in this podcast, uh, we find out that church planting is the major strategy that the Apostle Paul used in the propagation of the gospel. That's what we see. That's what we see the early church doing. That's the essence of what it means to take the gospel to Jerusalem and to Judea and to Samaria and to the ends of the earth, is to put new churches down where there weren't before. And so uh, most of the time, and for most people, probably who sit in the pew, perhaps even many pastors and elders, church planning is, an, is, a, is a nice thing. 
it, it would be good if we could sometime get around to that or if the churches in our area sometimes put down some new churches. But this ought to be of the very essence, uh, in, at least in this pastor's opinion, of, of uh, the, the vision, of the, the look of every church is that we have a view towards this. Um, because surely there aren't enough churches. Uh, statistically, in the early 1900s, there was a church for every 10,000 people in America. And um, you might know, or maybe you might not know, there are more churches that close in America every day, every week, every month, <clears throat> than open. And so as our population grows, uh, the number of people that each church serves uh, increases. And if you've been involved in a small church versus a large church, you know that most of the time, um, good ministry happens in small churches. And so we've, statistics are going in the wrong directions in terms of how many churches there are to serve people and to reach them with the gospel. Well, and that obviously brings up the, the whole issue of American culture. Uh, I heard, again, statistics, and, and we'll talk a bit about statistics here over the next hour. Um, and I, would, I think we would both definitely be in agreement with Neil Postman. If you've not read any Neil Postman on statistics, uh, we'd recommend that. Uh, because Neil Postman very, very saliently argues that statistics can be made to say anything you want them to say. So statistics are an indicator, but they, they should never be the sole thing uh, that we're basing our work on. And I think that's why we are arguing for an ordinary means of grace church planting model, if you want to call it a model, is because uh, we believe God has to be central to everything that is done in church planting. You, unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. Now, Matt, you brought up a point, and it made me think of Psalm 99, where we read this, The Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. Uh, I want you to notice as I read through this psalm, uh, he's not simply talking about Christians. This psalm is talking about every, every person in the world. Uh, the Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He is enthroned above the cherubim. Uh, let the earth shake. The Lord is great in Zion. Okay, a reference there to Israel. And then it goes on to say, and he is exalted above all the peoples. And then there's a command. There's a command to Zion. There's a command to all the peoples in verse 3. Let them praise your great and awesome name, for holy is he. Mm. So, we would agree, we, we would profoundly agree that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But when we say man there, we're not saying Christians. We're saying the chief end of man, of all man, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. It was uh, very interesting, I was reading Alexander's White, Alexander White's commentary just recently on the Shorter Catechism. And in that commentary, he draws out the fact that that first question of the Shorter Catechism, what is the chief end of man, could have been asked by any of the moral philosophers of the day, in the day that the Westminster Divines wrote the Westminster Confession. Hmm. That that very much was a question that was on the mind of philosophy. And that the men who wrote the Westminster Confession, it's not to say that they were secular men by any extent of the imagination, these were pastors, but they were very familiar with the writings of the day and the philosophy of the day. And so the first question that they knew needed to be asked is why do we exist? Why is man on this earth? And the answer is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The, the chief end of man is to worship God. 
Yeah, I think John Piper's the one who's made this point most yes. ex- most in, uh, wonderfully. In, let, let the nations be glad. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Yeah, yes. if uh, that will be on our list for what we reference for you on the website. You might uh, might know or may not know that uh, after each podcast, we endeavor to put up a, a recommended reading list. And uh, we'll put John Piper's Let the Nations Be Glad. And also we're going to read some statistics later from Tom Rainer's book, um, Surprising Insights from the Unchurched. And that's two books you might want to pick up on this concept of, of ordinary means. But uh, Piper's insight is extraordinarily good because you might ask, okay, so, all right, Matt, uh, Paul planted churches. Um, you know, okay, so you're saying that it's necessary. Why is it necessary? Well, when we look out over the world and we reference the psalm that Sean just said and we, th- we think about it, particularly this insight that Piper has brought to us and let the nations be glad, it brings God most glory and most satisfaction to people if they worship him. And so when we look out over the world, sometimes the motive for reaching people with the gospel is, well, we want to save them from hell. True. That's a fruit. That's a fruit, though, of them worshiping God and of being satisfied in him. It's not the end. Uh, And so when we look out and we think about church planning, the motive is that we want to see people worship God because it's the best for them and it brings God the most glory. And that's why we want to see churches planted. Exactly. We want to see the chief end of man realized. Realized. Yeah. And the way that that is realized is by kingdom building. And we're going to use that term a lot, kingdom building, because that's... Uh, that's what Jesus, that's the term Jesus used. Jesus talked about, I will build my kingdom, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so when we are church planting, we are building the kingdom of God in a, in a very real way, in a, in a way that is uh, pro- strongly based in the scriptural model of how, how the apostles saw we were to reach the world. Um, now, we don't want to say that a established church cannot kingdom build. We don't want to say that by, by any stretch of the imagination. Every church is called to be kingdom building, but church planting is a, is a special kind of kingdom building where you are reaching areas that perhaps have never been reached before, which sounds odd in America, uh, this Christian nation that we live in. Um, Notice the heavy quotation marks. The heavy quotation marks around Christian in that phrase. Um, we, we're no longer, if we ever were, which is certainly a matter for debate, and we're not going to debate that here, uh, if we ever were a Christian nation, we are not a Christian nation any longer. We are a postmodern nation. We are a post-Christian nation. We are a nation that uh, slowly but surely has removed God uh, from almost every marketplace. And reasserted the goddess in his place. Yes. Yes. See, anything Peter Jones has written for that, on that topic... Which takes us back, I think, to the book of Acts. Mm-hmm. Because what was Paul? What were Paul and Peter when they were going out, and Barnabas, and John Mark, and, and all these men who were going out, who were called by the Holy Spirit to go and plant churches in areas that didn't know about the church? You know, this, this new thing, the, the ecclesia now of God, found in Jesus Christ, founded upon the prophets and the apostles. Um, there were people who didn't know about this. And so Peter and Paul and Barnabas and John Mark and all these guys had to go out uh, with, by God's help and, and with the help of the churches that sent them, mm-hmm. both their prayers and their financial support, uh, to, to plant churches, to plant churches in these areas that never, had never heard of Jesus. Um, and when 
uh, and who, who would they go to first? They would go to the people who had some sense that the Messiah was coming. In fact, um, let me read here from Acts chapter 13. This is Paul's first missionary journey, and this gives you a sense of what was going on. Uh, I want you to notice particularly the, the strong sense of God's calling in this. This is not that these men were looking at statistics and saying, oh, the demographic is just perfect in Philippi. And so we, we really need to put a church there because it's got the correct suburban demographic to be able to support urban churches. They, they just weren't thinking like that. Um, now there were in Antioch, this is Acts 13, starting in verse 1. Now there were in Antioch, in the church that was there, so an existing church, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene and Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, now you get the sense here, while they were there, who are these men? These are all, it seems to me, these were all prophets and teachers. So this church had an abundance of pastors. It had too many pastors. They needed to diversify. Uh, they needed to diversify. Um, while they were ministering, verse 2, to the, to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they also had John as their helper. Very simple there. They're, they're, they're worshiping the Lord in an existing church. God calls them. Sends them out to a new place. Yeah. And, and, and interesting, a couple of points from that which are, which are interesting. Uh, this is a work of God. Uh, one of the things that uh, I, I think is uh, Sean and I agree on and, and is perhaps the cur- against the current a little bit of even church planting movements in America. Uh, church planting is not just having the right methodology and showing up and doing it and expecting that you're going to have a flourishing gospel work. Uh, it's a work of God. That's what we see in Acts. This is a work that God initiates. Um, but it's also one, as we think about it, as you think about uh, your church perhaps, it's a work that you ought to be asking God, do you want to initiate something? Uh, we see these guys gathered in this prayer meeting and they were willing to go do something more than what they were doing right now. And you as a church member, as a pastor, as an elder, uh, you need to think about, uh, do you ever ask that question? Is there something else besides this existing church you want me to do, Lord? How often do we move for a job? Oh, yeah. How often do we move for a bigger house? How often do we move for a better school system? How often do we move to plant a church? Now, it's not saying it's never done. It is. Oh, yeah. I, I know people, we have people in our church who, have, who are very much willing and ready to pick up, quit their job, and go to another area to be uh, part of a core group. Uh, again, it's, a, it's technical language we use today. I, I don't mean to, to use that weighted language in any way apart from the way the scripture would understand a, a group of people like Barnabas and Saul and John as their helper going. Um, but we, we need to be thinking about that. Why are we here? Well, we're here to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And the way that happens is as we bring men and women and children 
to give glory to God, and that only happens if we're kingdom planting. And so the logic just flows that if we're not planting churches, if, if our churches are simply plateaued, stable entities that are supporting an existing group of Christians, then we have to ask, if, if, there, if there really is no one else left where your church is to reach, then what is your church doing about reaching the lost? Well, and I think that what Sean said, and maybe we could think about this, it's good to have a stable, healthy, vital church. But it's not enough. It doesn't embody all of the spirit of the New Testament if you only have a view towards us. Uh, one pastor that Sean and I had, who's now a missionary in Uganda, uh, used to put it this way. He would say, are we here for us or are we here for them? And that's a question you've got to ask for your, own, for your own personal life, for your family life, for your church's life. Are we here for us or are we here for them? Because if we're here for them, uh, then we, uh, we sacrifice for them, we think about them, we pray for them. And by them, I mean people that don't yet know the Lord, who haven't come to glorify him and worship him and be satisfied in him alone. Um, something else about this meeting. They were open to it. They prayed about it. In uh, they, they, X13. In X13, yeah. yeah. Um, where they went, is very interesting. Uh, consistently, if you read through the book of Acts, and, and it's a book really about church planting is what it is, and then sustaining churches that, that were previously planted. Um, one and, of the things and, that you'll find... We ahead. should say the reason it is so much a book about church planting is because no churches existed. existed exactly. <laughs> At least no churches as we understand a church. Obviously, the, the term ecclesia in the Greek uh, was used all the way back in the Septuagint when Israel assembled... Uh, anytime the people of God assembled, it was the ecclesia. So the concept of church has been around since the beginning, and I think that's important that we recognize that. But what they're doing now in Acts is is planting the Christian church. Right, right. And I think that, that, that there's a couple of things that they do. One is that they go to, syn- to the synagogue first. Consistently, when you look in uh, the book of Acts, the place that they go first is where to man's perception there may be a reception of the gospel. Um, and so they go to the synagogue, um, and they go places where God fears, who were not native Jews, but were perhaps converts to Judaism. We say Lydia, just a few chapters over in Acts, who's a God-fearer. Um, and, and so they go places where they think the gospel might receive a reception in order to, to begin a, a new work. But they also go places uh, where simply people are thinking. You get four, four chapters over in the book of Acts, and you get to Acts 17, and, and Paul goes into Athens, and there ain't nothing. There's no synagogue. There's nobody to talk to. And so where does he go? He goes to the marketplace of ideas. And he goes and he goes and finds people that are at least thinking, and he begins to talk to them about the gospel. Maybe people who are asking that question, what is the chief end of man? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Which I'm, uh, that's found in Acts 17, we read about Paul at Athens. And this, as we mentioned a moment ago, we, we talked about the fact that we are in a, what is becoming increasingly a pagan nation. Um, Acts 17 becomes much more applicable to us than, uh, than Paul going to a synagogue or Paul going to the God-fearing Gentiles. Uh, more and more, reaching the lost in our country is going to the marketplace of ideas Ideas today, really, of despair and hope are the prevailing ideas. Uh, we have a message of hope. Absolutely. And we have 
I, I think of I now I'm a I'm a fan of the TV show Lost, but that show encapsulates this postmodern thinking. We're lost. We're, we are just stranded on an island with philosophers floating around us, and ultimately, who are we going to believe? And the answer that the show seems to give, now obviously it's a, it's a soap opera type show, so it's, it's going to give multiple answers over time, but the answer it seems to give is, I need to trust myself. Hmm. That in my own power, I can survive. Well, and it's interesting too, if it's you... Aretha Franklin theology. Oh, I see. Yeah, it, if um, perhaps some of our listeners have, have heard of uh, Francis Schaeffer, um, and... Uh, sh- Francis Schaeffer in a series in the late 70s called How Should We Then Live that's both the book and it's just been re-released on um, DVD for about 50 bucks and it's some of the best 50 bucks you can ever spend um, one of the things that he talks about that flowed out of the US culture of the 50s and 60s were two values that people had and these are the values um, that of my parents generation for example um, and they were personal peace and affluency that I don't necessarily need to be filthy rich, but I need to be comfortable, and I need nobody to bug me. Uh, and those are very much lived out in those uh, of the baby boom era. But of those in the generation that Sean and I live in, that's typified by lost, we're in the major marketing demographic in the world right now, um, where Sean and I sit age-wise, um, they don't believe that anymore. We have a blessed opportunity in our culture uh, for people who have become unconvinced that personal peace and affluency can satisfy. And so they're looking for satisfaction, and we know the one who satisfies. And so we have a great excitement about planting churches and about seeing people come to the gospel because people are asking questions now that they weren't asking 15 years ago. And that's a great, great uh, opportunity uh, for us, I think, in the church in America. In Acts 17, we see this in action. Uh, this, This very thing, Paul... Uh, was waiting uh, for Silas and Timothy. He was waiting at Athens, uh, verse 16 of chapter 17 in Acts. His spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing a city full of idols. Oh, praise God. I mean, not for the idols, but that Paul's spirit was provoked. He was angered. He was looking at these idols and saying, this is ridiculous. These people are worshiping the wrong gods. And so he was reasoning in the synagogues with the Jews and with the God-fearing Gentiles, as we've seen uh, there in verse 17, and then also in the marketplace every day with those happen- who happened to be present. I mean, essentially, he had to go get his food, and so he went to the marketplace, and here, here were the, the thinkers and the philosophers and the wise men of the day uh, standing around talking, and Paul just steps right in, uh, and he says... Um, Uh, It says they had the Epicurean Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, you know, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Speaking of Paul, others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities uh, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And so they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus saying, we want to know what this new teaching is. What is this you are proclaiming? What an opportunity. Absolutely. You know, I, what, what if, if we go to our age and our generation who is uh, suffering from hopelessness, from de- despair, I mean, depression today? It's just ridiculous. Never have I lived uh, in a decade that I have heard more advertisements on the radio for depression meds than, than I have in the past five to ten years. 
We ought to be the most happiest given our standard of living, but we are by far yes. the most depressed people the, the in big, the world. The bigger the houses get, the, the more lost inside of them we become. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So, it's so interesting. Two, maybe go, two more yeah, things about Acts 17. Um, one is that Paul went to the city. Mm. And uh, one of the things about the, um, the church in the 20th century was a phenomenon that was called white flight. And this wasn't just a church thing, but this was an entire culture thing. There's a reason that most of the cities in America are non-white. And it's because the whites chose to leave. They chose to pursue that personal peace and that affluency in the suburbs with their generous spaces and their green lawns and their bigger houses and their less traffic and all of those things. And the net effect of that was that the church lost influence in the cities because the gospel wasn't there any longer. And so one of the main... that's not to say that only the white people had the gospel. No, not at all. Uh, We want to be careful about that. Yeah, yeah. No, no, it's not just that the white people had the gospel, but um, I think that it was a strategic goof on the part of us and our churches to leave. In terms of in terms of being able to try and reach the city with the gospel, because there are by percentage many fewer churches now. There are more uh, non-white churches in the cities now, which is great. I have no problem with that at all, and many of them reaching out um, with the gospel. But we ought to, as we think about seeing new churches planted, it's easy to say, "Whoa, well, it, it, at least in, uh, in the particular uh, fellowship of churches that Sean are involved in, there's only one one of our churches in South Dakota. Well, we ought to have more than that in South Dakota. Yeah, well, what about New York City?" Do you, how many different uh, churches you could put in New York City because of all the different, just the language groups, just to have a church in its own language. And that's the way it is in all of our major cities. Some of them just a few blocks, but filled with one particular culture uh, that could use uh, a church in its own language. Uh, the very essence of what it is to fulfill the Great Commission, uh, the great work of Wycliffe Bible Translators. So that's their passion is to put the Bible in the language of people. And that's what we do with churches. We put in the language of people. So we ought to think about the cities. That's certainly what Paul did because they're strategic. They're the places of influence. Tim Keller has a, uh, what is it? Uh, It's an article. I know it's been floating around on the Internet. I could probably find a link to it uh, on a call to people to move back to the city. Essentially, have you seen that? I don't see. I haven't seen that article, but it doesn't surprise me a bit. Yeah, it's 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 very good. It's very balanced. He's not saying that we must, you know, that God is saying that everybody has to live in the city. Um, who's going to reach the people in the suburbs if everybody's right. living right. in the city? Right. But he argues, and I think well, that the city is the place of influence, just as in Athens, the marketplace was the place of influence. This is where the ideas flow from. You mentioned Schaefer earlier. Uh, Schaefer talks in um, uh, his his video series. How shall we then live? How shall we then live? Uh, he he goes and obviously in the book as well. He talks about the fact that if you look at the art in a culture, uh, both the painting and uh, the literature, what you're going to what you will see is the next step in that culture's evolution, if you will. In, in the movement of that culture, uh, we follow we follow the artists, we follow the thinkers, we follow the philosophers, whether we like it or not, whether we realize it or not, for it often is, is very subtle. 
Um, I, I love I'm one of my personal pastimes, and I'm not a big TV watcher, but I like watching if a show is a, is a big deal to people. I like to see one episode because I think TV does this. TV does not exist, and so this is what everybody needs to know. TV does not exist without an agenda. Every television show that is on has an agenda they're pushing, whether it be political, whether it be cultural, what have you. Um, you know, an obvious example is Will and Grace. You know, Will and Grace was pushing the properness of a homosexual lifestyle. Well, what you may not realize was that years ago, Three's Company was doing the same thing. But in a lot more restrained but way. But in a lot more restrained way. And you see, there all these these shows have an agenda. Now, that's just one aspect of culture is our is our entertainment industry. Uh, it just happens to be one that I, I tend to focus on. Um, but if you look at a culture, you can see if you look at the art of a culture, what they're producing, you can see the direction a culture is taking. If Christians are not in the arts. If Christians which primarily are, take place in the cities. Which primarily, well, and that's where I'm going. If the Christians yeah. are not in the places of influence, then ultimately the influence in that area will be given to the pagan. Right, right. And it's, I think, related to this, too, and, and another insight that I think that Tim Keller brings in that's very helpful, he has a, um, a good essay that we can probably link to called The Centrality of the Gospel, is that the, the gospel, although it's a message about God and man and his need for Christ, and that you can get your most satisfaction only uh, by bringing glory to God, because that's what you're made for. We're made to run and worship. Um, that the gospel has ramifications. It has applications everywhere. Um, gospel art will look different. Uh, the content may be similar, but the purpose for which it's done, the reason that it is made... Uh, is different. And so gospel art is going to look different than the art that comes from a pagan. And so the, the Christian ought to film, um, photography, uh, you know, music, in all of these ways, uh, the arts uh, are going to look different by somebody who's doing them for the glory of God and with a Christian worldview behind them. And this is a way in which Christians are salt and light and primarily takes place in cities. And so... Uh, we got to be seeing thrive, thriving, vibrant churches in the cities that support the arts, that, that are looking to do the best art, because we have the best reason to do it, to bring God glory through, uh, the, through imaging him in our creativeness. I'm glad, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm glad you said that, because I, I think one of the questions maybe that someone who is listening will be asking is, how on earth can a painting you know, a picture somebody drew affect the future of a culture. Um, and the way it does is because paintings are a reflection of the, the influential ideas of a period. Uh, paintings are not a thing unto themselves. Uh, paintings are an, an outflow of the artist and the artist's thinking and the artist thinking as a part of a greater culture. And so they are an indicator of a direction that a culture is taking. Yeah, yeah. And if you've, you've maybe you thought a little bit about the arts, and we should probably get back to church planning, but let me give you one last link that maybe we can put on the website. But there's a great article by uh, Marvin Alasky a couple years ago in World Magazine uh, that cued me to the fact that uh, an art exhibition was coming to uh, a museum here in Pittsburgh in the area where Sean and I live um, from a school of artists called the Hudson River uh, Artists. And... Um, 
he was the first that cued me to really think Marvin Alasky did uh, about this idea that, that Christian art could look different. And if you ever have the opportunity uh, to go and see an exhibition of the Hudson River Painters, uh, it would be well worth your time. If you ever happen to be in Birmingham, Alabama, and you go to the art museum, Sean and I went there several years ago together, and there is an enormous, and, and when I say enormous, I mean a painting that fills up an entire wall of uh, Yosemite Valley, and it is uh, unseeming. Uh, the oh, effect that it, that, it ha- that it has upon you, and that's precisely its point, is that these painters painted from a Christian worldview, and they wanted to bring the grandeur of God and the, and the enormity of creation, the immensity, the person, the immensity, of, God. The immensity yeah. of God, um, to the to to the person. Uh, and that's not to say that, and this is a realistic painting. It's not to say only realistic painting. There's a, um, a wonderful Japanese artist in New York City who's been profiled in several different places, um, who's just exceptionally good in the way that he uses color and a particular Japanese mode of painting, where it's not um, it's not even really representation of much of anything. But what it is, is it's intensely beautiful. It reminds you of the way that God has sculpted color in a fish or in a bird, where it's iridescent and it changes with angle and things like that. And he uses a technique, imaging his creator, he's a Christian, uh, where just that technique of being able to change color with angle uh, is tremendous. And so we're not saying that only representational art is Christian, but what we're saying is that a Christian artist is going to do something uh, different. And so we ought to have churches uh, that are that have that kind of sense, that kind of vision for the Christian life. Um, and most of the time that's going to happen in cities because that's where art happens. Phil Riken has a little, little book. It's a booklet that he just published called Art for God's Sake. And I think that would be a, a good resource for those who would want to um, pursue this. And if you send in a donation this month, we'll send you a free copy of the book. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, we do not have the resources to do that, but uh, you're welcome to send in a donation uh, to, keep our, to keep our glasses of water filled. Uh, now, why on earth, how on earth, did we get from church planting to talking about art? Well, we got there because we're talking about influence. And we're talking about the fact that we want God to be the influence Everywhere, We want all men to be, to at least hear the command. Not all men are going to respond to the command. But we want all men to hear the command that you must glorify God. You are called to exalt your creator. And so because of that, uh, we see a, a deep need to be church planting, to be reaching areas where the gospel was not, prim- not before. Now, what you're going to see today, particularly in America, is areas that might have once had the gospel and no longer do. And so rather than saying, well, we tried there, it's time to go back in there and, like Paul, step into the marketplace of ideas First, yes, go to the people who have an obvious interest. But if those people aren't there and you're standing around waiting for your Timothy and your Silas and you are uh, oppressed within your soul because of the idols that you see, well, then here is a place that needs the gospel. Now, in the case in Athens, they were willing to hear him. They also kicked him out. So it was a frequent occurrence. It with was Paul. a frequent occurrence with Paul, but that didn't stop him from preaching the gospel. So often we say, "Well, you know what? They're just going to close the door in my face." I, I remember I had a um, 
church planting experience, uh, unlike any that uh, I had ever had before, and that is that I planted a church in two weeks. And not by myself, I was with a team of people, and uh, we went to a place that was white for harvest. Everyone we talked to about Jesus Christ wanted to hear what we had to say, wanted to listen. Uh, We had crusade meetings every night for two weeks, and at the end of those two weeks, there was a church of just over 100 people. This was 10 years ago. In the 10 years since then, this church has planted two other churches in areas that did not have the gospel and has started a seminary. Now, where was this? This was in Uganda, East Africa. Only, uh, I I don't want to say only, but only in a place like Uganda, East Africa right now can you plant a church in two weeks' time. Uh, We planted it with nationals from Uganda. Their pastor was a Ugandan national. This is a the Presbyterian Church of Uganda now has three more churches in the last 10 years uh, because of the help and support of people here in America who want to see that happening. It's a very poor culture, but with a little bit of support, uh, they can see amazing things happen. We came back from that, and we were amazed in Uganda at the fact that we could uh, knock on a door. Well, most people didn't have doors. They had maybe a curtain across an opening. Uh, but but come up to a door, somebody we didn't know said, can we talk to you? They said, come in. You know, they had only one uh, box of crackers left in their home. That was all the food they had, and they shared it with us. And these people wanted to hear the gospel. They wanted to hear about what we had to say. I had a situation in Uganda where a, a gal on the street came up to me. She was selling meat. She had a, just a, like a half of a cow hanging there on the street. The flies were buzzing around. And she goes, you're, you know, you're from America. Come, give, me, uh, give me money. You from America. And I, and, and I was able to say to her, you know, I don't have any money to give you. Silver and gold have I none. But here's what I have. I've, I've got Jesus Christ, and this is why I'm here. And it was people like that who were very, very receptive to the gospel. So we came back, and as a church, you were a part of this, weren't you, Matt? Mm-hmm. We started knocking on doors. We said, hey, it worked in Uganda, let's try it here. And we got tons of doors slammed in our face. A lot of people said, the people who didn't slam the door were the people who said, well, I already have a church. Um... The people who did slam the door, they wanted you know, nothing to do with us. I don't, know if, I don't know if anybody came to church because of our doing that, but I think that pleased God. And I'm sure that might have opened doors in some people's lives that we don't even know about. We don't even know about some of the seeds that might have planted. So often a pastor will go in and attempt to plant a church. It doesn't work. But then somebody else will come 10 years later to the same area, maybe even some of the same people, and it does work. Is it because the demographic was wrong? Was it because he got the wrong statistics the first time? No. No, it's because God's purposes the first time was part of his purpose as much as the last time. A failed church plant is as much under the sovereignty of God as a quote-unquote successful church plant. And I I think this brings us then to what we want to say about the ordinary means, is if we're going to be kingdom building, we need to do it the way God has said. And that's through the word, prayer, and the sacraments. 
Um, I think that one of the things that, that Sean and I are passionate about is we're passionate about church planning. You might have gotten that sense in the majority of the time that we spent so far. But we're passionate about it being done in a certain way. Um, gospel work is personal work. It, it's talking with people. I'm intrigued. I hadn't thought about this particular angle. I've thought about Acts 17 in lots of different ways. But there, Paul was doing a personal gospel ministry. It wasn't that he didn't do a public gospel ministry as well. But this is the essence of church planning, is that it's both. It's both a work that's done by people who come together and say, this place needs a gospel center, a gospel focus, a meeting place. But it's also not just a church that gathers, but it's also a church that distributes, that scatters, that goes out and says the people in our area need the gospel. And so people who come together to put a new church on the ground come with a different view of what church is going to be like, at least for the first period of time. They recognize that for right now that this is going to be a, a sacrificial work this is going to be a work where, and maybe I not necessarily get ministered to all that much, that I'm giving a lot of ministry, and that intentionally the people who gather to begin a new church go out in the confidence of the gospel to speak the gospel to people. It's not that they've got to have the best music that's ever happened. It's not that they've got to have the best youth ministry that ever happened. Though so Both of those things might be nice, might be helpful, depending on the community. It's that they go out with this very simple word, in the power of the Spirit, out of gratitude to God, they go out with the gospel. The things that are needed in a healthy church are needed also in a healthy church plant. Uh, one of the things that Sean and I both enjoy about Tom Rainer is um, my friends uh, is want to say after reading this particular book that we're going to reference surprising insights from the unchurched. Um, my one friend said, "I love books that justify my presuppositions." <laughs> <laughs> But one of the things, surprisingly, uh, Tom Rainer does a, does a study um, of people who just recently come into, into uh, membership of a church from an unchurched background. And he asked this question to them, why did you come to this church? Uh, so this is people who, who've come into membership, they've become Christians and come into membership in the last two years. Why did you come to this church? Now put on your hat, uh, as an existing Christian, maybe as an elder, as a pastor, what do you think that the number one answer is? Most go In ahead. Fact, I think the number one answer is going to be this church was willing to change my oil while I sat in the service. <laughs> that was the number one reason. Am I right? No. And it wasn't that you could win a Harley if you came or that your life would be better if you came. You give me five dollars if I show up for the service. No, I'm sorry. Do you remember this pastor, the pastor who tried that? Yeah. The number one answer of these reason reasons why people joined a particular church, the number one reason was the pastor. And then the number two reason, nope, nope, it wasn't the music or the worship style. It was the teaching of the church. The preaching. The particularly preaching. The preaching. Yeah, the preaching. The, the, he ties those two together. Right. It wasn't that it was just the pastor as a man, but the pastor as a preacher. And as a preacher of doctrine. Which is the second? Which is the next thing on the right. list? Is doctrine? You want to know where worship style was? This is for again, as you said, this is for people who were unchurched and joined a church for the first time. Worship style and music was second to last on the list, just above other. Just yeah, just above <laughs> no, just above location. Just above location. And then I think that's just above the um, uh, just, just above the cleanliness of the bathrooms. You know, I mean, it was it was down that low. 
Right. See, our usual view is that the reason that people aren't coming to a church, whether it be a new church or an existing church, is because we're, we haven't done something right, when that is not the answer. The reason most of the time is they haven't, they haven't come to a recognition um, that they need Christ. How are they going to come to that? It's going to be through someone coming to them, talking to them individually. Interestingly, the fourth item on Rainer's list is the, is the personal ministry of the people in the church. And so what we see in that, that statistics... Someone, that someone from this church witnessed to me. Exactly. And so if we look at it, and, and again, statistics can be made for into anything. But this, this particular set of statistics shouldn't surprise us. Because all it does is echo the kind of ministry that we learn about in the scriptures. A ministry that's ordinary means and it's orientation. Well, you know, you know who comes to a church for the worship style. Because there is... There is just a statistic for that. Existing Christians. Existing Christians. Right. That's who's switching churches because of worship style. Right. Because Christians in our culture, in America, are profoundly self-centered. Yeah. yeah. We, and and I'm, I'm sorry if I've offended anyone by that, but it's true. I will admit to it. I am self-centered. Um, oh, what I what we do is we get into a church and we begin to want certain things and demand certain things and if we don't like certain things then we go find a church that that fits me and you see these people in the churches who just hop around from church to church because no church ever meets exactly their description of what they want right and the right. fact is if you find the perfect church don't join it because it won't be perfect <laughs> anymore. Because you'll be there. Yeah. So if we look at the essence of what we might call ordinary means church planting, is that this is not a complex thing. Um, it is, in one sense, extraordinarily simple. Now, that's not to say that we ought not be wise. Uh, Jesus talked about in the Gospels, and you see this exemplified in Acts. They were wise in the way that they went after things. The kind of... Teaching, public teaching, preaching, proclamation of the gospel that Paul did in Athens, entirely different than what he did in the synagogue. We're not saying this has to be cookie cutter. Uh, if you're going into a Haitian neighborhood in New York, Sean or I probably may not be the guy that you want to use for that. Uh, we don't know much about voodoo. Uh, we don't know much about what their hopes, fears, dreams, those kinds of things. We don't know where they're at. They might be better off with somebody, uh, maybe they would be uh, white, maybe they would be Haitian, but somebody who knows where they're at, somebody who has the ability to perceive where people are in the culture, what they're thinking, and how it is in particular in that place, the gospel needs to be applied to them. And so uh, we're not saying by ordinary means that it's cookie cutter, that, that each church plant is going to look exactly the same. No, it, it absolutely can't any more than a church plant in Uganda can look the same as a church plant in America. They're going to look vastly different. But what we're saying is that in every place that we go, the way that we go is not with a focus on uh, all the snazziness and the methodology and the demographics, but wisely we try and apply these ordinary means of grace and see God do a great work. If you plant a church based on jazz music... So you're going into, let's say you're going into an urban setting, and you say, our church is going to be all about worshiping God with jazz music. Which could be done. Which could be done. But what is the foundation, then, of that church? It's, it's a slippery foundation. Well, and the draw point, the reason that people come to the church is 
it's frankly, it's not a biblical one. It, what's the reason that people come to church? It's because they want to worship the Lord. It's because they're impressed with the greatness and the glory and the grace of God. And that's why they come. Um, not because uh, we've done something snazzy to attract them, but because God's attracted them to his own worship. So the foundation has to be preaching. The, yeah. the word of God has to be foundational to a church plant. And I don't think you'd find any church planter that would disagree with that. What you're going to find where the, where the controversy is going to come is in the methodology, is how these men apply their wisdom. And honestly, there have been some churches that have applied methodologies that I cringe at, and yet at the same time, I have to say, you know what? God's worked there. Absolutely. There have been people, on the other hand, there have been people who go in with something I would say is close to an ordinary means, but were so, uh, shall we say, legalistic about it that, uh, that the work did not succeed, and I, and I think because it didn't deserve to succeed, mm-hmm. uh, because it was not a, a grace uh, founded in the, the grace and love of God found in Jesus Christ. You know, maybe it was founded in saying, in treating, and this is, this is a, a thin line we walk here, treating the ordinary means as if they were a methodology. Good point. Because uh, if we w- just preach and pray... God will have to bless it. Yes. Saying that if I'm just faithful, God will bless it. Right. You're, you're, I see this more and more in some of the thinking today, some of the thinking that's coming up through the, the new theologies that are spreading around. If I'm just faithful. Now, I agree with that statement, that if we are faithful, God will bless it. But it's more because God is blessing it, we are faithful. Well, and it's, and it's the question, do we deserve it? You've got to flip it around. Yeah. Do we deserve it because we just use the right methodology? Absolutely not. See, that's man-centered. Yeah. All we're trying to yeah. do is get out of the way. What we're trying to do, the gospel is not a message about us, about the messenger. It's a message about God and, and the, 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 the promise and deliverance that he brings to people through Jesus Christ. And really, all we want to do is we want to get out of the way. We don't want to interject ourselves in the way between God working in people through his word by his spirit. We want to get out of the way. And so that's why we say we, we believe in, a, in what we might call a very slim methodology. A wise one, but a slim one. Um, I love uh, some of the emphases that, that Tim Keller has, and in particular a friend that Sean and I know who's planting a church in Hartsville, South Carolina. Here's what an ordinary means church plant looks like. They have a weekly prayer meeting, and they have since the first week he was on the ground. Now you might look at that and you might go, Oh, weekly prayer meeting at church, come on. I mean, I know the old Baptist church on the street used to do that, but I mean, that was like so 20th century. No, that's so 1st century. The very essence of planting a church is praying. If this is a work of God, not us and our fancy statistics or our demographics or our training, if this is a work of God, then at the forefront, what a huge proportion of time ought to be spent on is prayer, because it's God who must move. Eugene, Eugene Peterson, I've, I think I've said this before. Um, in fact, I might have said it last month when we talked about prayer and prayer meetings. But I think Eugene Peterson in Contemplative Pastor has put it so well in that, and in, in that book he's not talking about church planting per se, but he says that a pastor going into a counseling situation, going into a situation where they're sitting down with somebody who's struggling through something in their Christian walk, 
that the pastor is not there to fix everything. He's simply coming in to a life that God is already working in by his Holy Spirit. And so our job as a pastor is not to go in and fix everything. That's pride talking when we think that we have the ability to go in and fix everything. I mean, how many, how many young pastors have failed because they thought they had all the answers coming right out of seminary? What Eugene Peterson points out is, no, the Holy Spirit is already working in the life of a believer and in, in, in an area that he is calling you to bring the gospel. Our job is simply to go in sensitive to what God is doing and simply get on board with what God's doing. Well put. Well put. Well, Matt, anything else we want to say? Do you want to give uh, any any testimony? We've both had, I've had a couple church planting experiences. Uh, you've been thrown into one. <laughs> That's a good um, way to put it. You, you've, you're pastoring what was very recently a church plant. Yeah, I'm in a church that's about, um, well, we're coming up on eight years of existence. Um, but it was a, um, it actually probably is a more typical church plant than I'd like to admit, in that basically uh, groups of people from two churches uh, came together and said uh, the two churches were about 45 minutes apart. And they said, hey, it would be wise, and they were right, to have a church in the center. And, uh, and so they came together about eight years ago and, and uh, put together a church in uh, the area where I live and where I pastor. And... Uh, there were some things that were done very well. We have a wonderful group of people, um, but there were some things that were uh, unwisely done. There wasn't uh, some wisdom that was used in some aspects of the church planning. And so, frankly, it's been a, a struggle. Some of you know me personally, and you know that it's been a great struggle since I've been here uh, in many respects. And our uh, elders have, becoming to, have been coming to understand a lot of these things of what a healthy church looks like and how it is that a church plant can thrive. And in particular... Um, how we need to be here for them and not for us. It's so easy for us because we are, as Sean said earlier, self-centered Americans, uh, to really look at church and say, and have the major question that, that is at the forefront of our minds, what am I getting out of it? Instead of, uh, who is it that we're reaching? And that's a dynamic that we're, uh, that my people have heard an awful lot, and the, the ship is beginning to turn, thankfully. And we're beginning to think those ways instead of what, is, what can I get out of it is what, what is it that we can do with the gospel here and see God do. And so um, we, we talk about this with some passion and with some uh, great interest because uh, we've both involved, been involved in situations that uh, didn't go particularly well. Sean had a situation in California, too, where he planted a church or was involved in planting a church that was also odd. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we yeah we did we had uh, we had 250 people in six months in a in a rural setting that we never would have imagined we could have done that. Uh, I went with a team of guys. We just sort of picked an area. I mean, for for a couple of us, we were seminary graduates. We were just looking for a job, um, and we went with a with a third man who had been a pastor who had been a church planter. We went into an area. And God just opened up the door. It's interesting that the people who are now a part of that church are different than the people who were there when I was there. Uh, there was a certain amount of transition. God, God brought in a number of people who did not stay, but essentially were what, the, what God needed 
to to give the church the the motion and the flow to be an existing church, and then the whole uh, context of the culture of the church changed. It started with uh, very much a um, uh, a lot of people in older generations, and now it is uh, very much a, a family centered church. And that wasn't any anything that was done specifically by the leadership. It was simply a transition that God took it through. Uh, and yet that church is now a thriving, healthy PCA church. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I've had some uh, some crazy experiences where I, when I think about church planting, I think, of course God's going to work. When you, Matt, think about church planting, you say, Lord, God work? Lord please work. <laughs> um, but th- that goes to say, it goes to show, though, that God works in different ways and and all of them are right. Yeah. Yep. We can never accuse him of doing wrong. No. We can only plead that he might do different if things are not going the way that we'd like to. If we still have this this angst that Paul felt, that we go into a place and we say, oh, this place is full of idols. How miserable these people must be because they are not pursuing what God made them for, which is to know him and worship him. Amen. Well, maybe we can end with a bit of... Um self-centeredness since we're self-centered Americans <laughs> and let you know some of Matt and my pa- my uh, passion for this is uh, forming itself into a book uh, we have a publisher and uh, we will we'll certainly say more about that but we are we'll just say this that we are writing a book currently on the necessity of church planting that every church needs to have as its at its core level of understanding the what kingdom building kingdom building needs to be at the center of every church and Matt and I are working on this book right now in fact uh, we're going to be working on it later this afternoon uh hammering some things out and look for that in mid uh spring summer fall next year from Reformation from Trust from Reformation Trust the new uh, print of Ligonier Ministries well Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for thinking with us for this hour on church planting and the ordinary means. As always, we welcome your comments, your suggestions, your questions at the blog. Even Uh, even your arguments. Even your arguments. Um, And you can reach uh, that blog by going through the main site, which is ordinarymeans.com. And I think that's all the, uh, the information that you need for today. We'll put this when we post this uh, podcast. We'll also put up a link to a number of the books that we've talked about, a number of the articles that we've talked about, and we hope that's a ho- helpful resource to you. We encourage you to uh, interact with us and, and let your friends know if this has been a helpful resource to you. Uh, we'd like to be helpful to your friends as well. So thank you for joining us today, and until uh, you hear us again, until we get together and talk around the table again, may the Lord richly bless you as you pursue him through his ordinary means. Mm-hmm.